0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: It's finals week. My last final was today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> School's out for summer. Ugh,
0: not for me. Everyone's like, oh, thank God. And I'm like, no, this is the two busiest weeks of my entire year, but that's okay. Okay. I would make the celebratory beer sound, but it's already open.
1: <laughs> yep, mine is too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That's, that's where we're at. I'm not even going to complain about grading. I'm beyond that now.
1: <laughs> yeah, now you're getting ready for your pilgrimage to Colorado for the first time in a while.
0: I know this is the first one since 2019. So first field camp since 2019. I'm terrified. <sighs> I've forgotten what all the rocks look like. I don't know. No, it'll be great. Um, I'm actually super excited. And we have 26 students, so
1: it's going to be,
0: yeah, (laughs) it's a big class. Um, It should be, should be fun. I can't wait. It makes your
1: statistics look better when you lose one.
0: It's true. 85% return (laughs) rate, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: much harder when you only have six people. (laughs) right yeah yeah
1: five and down those numbers start looking real bad yeah
0: exactly exactly but you're absolutely right (laughs) so yeah that's um that's where we're at so two weeks from now we'll be have all those cricket noises in the backgrounds and uh yeah should be good
1: (laughs) and they will be legitimate summer shorts because you won't be able to stay awake for any more than that
0: uh I will not be able to stay awake and the internet will crash and turn into a black hole (laughs) yep (laughs) like you joke about my barbed wire internet out here but out there it's like i don't know bronze age internet
1: (laughs) yeah there's not even barbed wire it's just Mm -hmm. smoke signals
0: prayers (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah um how is uh, how is your ramping into summer going any more freak or more frequent academics who are like yeah i'm gonna attack john now (laughs) oh yeah yep excellent yep
1: I I am going to actually pull some statistics from Gmail I think and write a whole blog post on this oh man because it is just hysterically obvious (laughs) when people get out of school I go from I mean I get lots of email every day but I go from two or three well okay Maybe every week I get one email or two from somebody that I haven't heard from in a while Mm -hmm. that has a question on something we've built for them or wants something done or wants something modified. And generally it's pretty minor. Okay. I go from that one to two a week to four a day (laughs) this time of year.
0: (laughs) Uh, Hey, John, haven't talked in a while. Can you do this, 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 this? (laughs)
1: and need them by today
0: yeah what when else do you think acting needs stuff by you know when yesterday yeah Yeah. it's true (laughs) and this all
1: comes in the midst of trying to actually say like hey i'm going to take (laughs) you know one day a week off (laughs) instead of work seven days a week
0: (laughs) Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> it's so funny because we need everything yesterday, and yet I graded stuff today during a final that was turned in, in the first of March. So you know. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, it's a terrible double standard that we have.
1: That that is the two modes of academic email response: <laughs> is either can you do this insane task by an hour from now, or I'm sorry I didn't reply to this email from two years ago until now, but.
0: (laughs) Hey, I did that to our buddy Paul in Portland. (laughs) Two years. (laughs) Yep. I had a baby. I just want to blame that on her. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Oh, man. Yep. That's great.
1: But. But yeah. So, no, I mean, it's good because it it is all business. Uh, Just is one of the more crazy and stressful times Mm -hmm. uh, for us is always summer summer vacation
0: yep yep i hear that even if the rest of academia doesn't field camp directors are also freaking out right now
1: (laughs) (laughs) but you know i even though it is sometimes frustrating i do consider myself lucky that Uh, we have enough business because there are a lot of small businesses that just aren't making it right now. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You're lucky none of us know how to build anything or work our equipment that we do have.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) And keep breaking what you have.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Why would we keep anything going correctly? (laughs) Right. Uh I mean, on on that note, correctly, I'm not going to answer anything you asked me today correctly because we're delving into... A very specific wormhole of your academic love.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, you know, we talked about breaking things, and this is one of the ways we talk about how things break.
0: Okay, great. Um, I hope we're going to talk about, you know, biaxes and triaxes and SEMs. Is that that what's happening today? (laughs) Not at all. Oh, okay, cool.
1: (laughs) Nope. So we're going to talk about, last week we talked about, Hardness, toughness, uh, and brittle and ductile deformation. And we touched on plastic. This time, we're going to talk about fracture toughness, which is different than toughness.
0: I, but you said toughness. What do you mean it's different than toughness?
1: <laughs> well, it's not toughness. It's fracture toughness.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. So... Yeah. I learned so much last week, number one, that I already knew a lot about stuff. I was very pleased about that. I just didn't know the right words to use. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so this one, okay. I'm just going to let you start, and then I will inject my – definitely going to be a lot of questions.
1: (laughs) Well, I will say we're not going to go as in-depth onto the molecular level this time. You can. People do. This is a confusing enough topic without it.
0: Are we talking, we're not just talking about rocks. You just told me, no, we're not going to talk about biaxes and triaxes or SEM. So I'm assuming that fracture toughness is a word that is also like a materials word, not just a rock word.
1: Yes, it's a material science word.
0: Okay. All right. Gotcha. Uh,
1: It was, we'll talk about the development of it some, but, uh, like most things, it was originally developed to help engineer airplanes to go blow other people up.
0: Ah, okay. This makes more sense now. All right. Yeah. Hit me so, with it.
1: fracture toughness, if you want the, the book definition, is a material property that describes the material's capacity to resist fracture while enduring a crack.
0: Oh. Okay. While enduring a crack, but wouldn't fracture? Right. And that's not plas- elastic deformation? No. Okay.
1: So, I think, I, I would say everybody's done this, but I don't know that that's a true statement anymore. Because hardware stores are not what they used to be. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people have gone and bought glass and had it cut.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: How do they cut glass?
0: they got that weird little, uh, well, I know how I cut glass for thin sections. I've got this little tool, and it makes a scour mark, and then it's got a little knocker on it, and you knock on it, and it breaks.
1: Yeah, so you make a a scratch Uh in the surface, and then somehow, magically, the material fails exactly along that scratch when you tap
0: it. Yes, yes. It is. It's magical.
1: (laughs) Right, so that scratch is a crack.
0: Right, okay, yes.
1: Now, the fact that when you scratch it, the material doesn't just blow apart
0: mm-hmm. says that it has
1: some fracture toughness.
0: Oh, okay, that makes sense. But
1: take something like an ice pick and go scratch a two-by-four and give it a good whack.
0: I'm not going to do anything.
1: <laughs> it's not going to do anything. Uh huh. Two-by-four... Is much more fracture tough than that glass.
0: Oh. Okay. So I'd have to cut it nearly in half to get it to break along that.
1: You got to have a crack. big fracture.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes uh,
1: sense. And there's some fun things that we'll get into about it, but in a nutshell, that's it.
0: Okay. There, so, how is this measured? I need to know that before we go on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so <laughs> there's all kinds of experimental games you can play to do this
0: oh yeah i imagine um, i imagined you had a list
1: <laughs> but fracture toughness itself is in pascal's root meters
0: ah, yes so a paleomagnetist made this up
1: and <laughs> <laughs> eh, not quite <laughs>
0: Amps per meter uh, squared? Come on, this sounds like...
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, fair. So <laughs> one of the things that you have to think about is the, the shape of what you're doing. But before we even get to the shape of the crack or the shape of the material, let's go back to, well, why... How did this come about to start with? Okay. Okay, so back in world war one there is an aeronautical engineer named alan arnold griffith a.a griffith okay he did a bunch of neat stuff like uh start the development of the jet engine
0: thought that sounded familiar
1: (laughs) yep but he also developed this linear elastic fracture mechanics or lefm to explain how brittle materials fail okay And here's why we needed it. So if you take that glass slide that you've got. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, maybe not that slide. That's pretty thin. But let's say you've got a big block of glass. The stress needed to fracture that bulk glass is something like 100 megapascals. Okay. So for those of us that live in Yankee units, that's a little (laughs) under eight tons.
0: (laughs) a bunch.
1: Right. Mhm. If you were just to calculate what the strength of that glass should be based on the the fact to break glass you have to break atomic bonds, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Mhm.
1: Yeah, so that's what it means to fracture glass is you're ripping these these atoms apart from each other at a microscopic level. Right. And if you calculate the force needed to do that, you get something like 10,000 megapascals.
0: Oh, wow. I lot. mean,
1: I, I'm a geologist, but being off by a factor of a hundred, <laughs> pretty bad.
0: <laughs> um, okay. Yes. So. Yeah. Hmm.
1: So, Griffith said, "Why is this so?" Yes. <laughs> and started conducting some experiments and started seeing weird stuff. So he started taking these glass fibers. And finding out at what stress they fracture.
0: Okay. And he tried. The, like little bitty, tiny, tiny ones.
1: Well, so he tried different diameters. Okay.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. And you would expect that as you get to a smaller diameter glass fiber, it's going to take less to fracture it, right?
0: That's what I would expect. But your voice tells me otherwise.
1: <laughs> that is not what Griffith observed.
0: Uh, okay
1: he found that fracture stress increased as the diameter of the glass fiber decreased.
0: No kidding.
1: So before Griffith, everybody had used this thing called uniaxial tensile strength, which is exactly what you think it is. You take the piece of metal, the piece of glass, whatever, <laughs> you pull on both ends, and you see what the stress is when it breaks.
0: Yep.
1: It's not a very good measure of when something's going to break because he's showing that it is now specimen-dependent. mm mm
0: mm-hmm. You can't just take any chunk of whatever.
1: Exactly. You can't take a chunk of steel and pull it and say, well, a chunk of steel 10 times the size will behave the same way.
0: Right. Okay. I mean, thank God he showed that, right?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've had a, a lot more ships sink and airplanes fall out of the sky. And,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right.
1: So he said, well, maybe things are weaker because there are flaws in them. This should sound familiar from last week's <gasps> it show. It
0: does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And these microscopic flaws in bulk materials are what causes their actual fracture strength to be so much lower. So when I have a little beady tiny glass fibers, there are fewer flaws in that cross-sectional area.
0: hmm Brilliant. That was a great tie-in. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Very good.
1: (laughs) So then Griffith said, well, okay, uh, I should be able to prove this with artificial flaws. Right. So he started taking samples and introducing cracks that were, you know, we're talking microscopic cracks for the ones that are in the material from manufacture. He introduced big cracks, Mm
0: -hmm. at least compared
1: to those, and said, well... My theory should hold. With these big cracks, the fracture strength of the material should be much less. And sure enough, it was.
0: Okay. The good old days of simplistically beautiful empirical experiments, right? (laughs) Yep.
1: No statistics (laughs) needed here.
0: Exactly. (laughs) I love it. It's
1: like the sign that used to hang above the, the biax in the lab that I did my grad work in he said if you need statistics you should have done a better experiment
0: <laughs> p MacPerson person definitely did not write that <laughs> right <laughs> oh that's awesome okay
1: okay so griffith has this idea now he says i think i understand something what's going on did some empirical observations uh basically what I ended up finding is you get concentration of stresses at the tips of cracks. Okay. And that is what makes this material weaker because while the material is very strong, at the tips of that crack, the stress is much higher than the stress you're imposing on the material.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: So that starts ripping the material apart.
0: That makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of us have had cracked windshields and watched that crack run across the windshield.
0: Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. hmm. All
1: right, so that's because the stress on the glass at the tip of that fracture is ever so little over the fracture point of the glass. If you get to a situation where you've got a lot of <laughs> a lot over, this crack can then grow uncontrolled. And that's how a crack becomes a fracture.
0: That makes sense. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So when we're testing a material, it's pretty clear when something fractures because the crack suddenly expands to the edges of the material and it fails. Okay. All right.
0: Now we can... Something you don't want your airplane wing to do, right? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Which is something you don't want you to do. Um, and in fact, you know, there's the pretty, case, uh, pretty famous case of the de Havilland Comet. Uh, this airplane that had square windows. And because that oh. square shape okay. is a sharp corner, it concentrated stress. And several of these things just fell apart in the sky. Because cracks in the metal would start at those sharp corners because they concentrated stress and eventually became a critical crack where it ran around the whole body of the plane and it fell apart. Ah. Yowza. So that's why windows on airplanes have rounded corners. That rounded that larger the radius, the smaller the stress concentration. Because what's the radius of a sharp crack?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Zero. Mm-hmm.
1: So stress goes to infinity.
0: Just keeps going. Went around the whole plane. Ouch.
1: <laughs> yeah. Huh. Okay. So this is why if you get a crack in something, oftentimes you can stop it by drilling a hole at the crack tip.
0: Which is so funny because it seems so counterintuitive. But yeah.
1: Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it increases that radius, decreases the stress at the tip of that crack to below a point where the material will continue cracking
0: okay yeah that makes sense
1: yeah so if you've got a plexiglass something you know shield over your plants or something that starts getting a crack in it just pull out a drill bit and drill a hole right at the tip of that crack and it'll stop
0: brilliant except now it's got also
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> well i had a crack in it before so
0: Ah, that's true. That's true. <laughs>
1: it also is a plot point in one of the strangest sci fi movies ever called Crack in the World.
0: Oh <laughs> ah, that's amazing.
1: <laughs> where the earth is going to have a crack that runs all the way around it and split the earth. And their solution is to drop a nuclear weapon into a volcano to create a big hole at the track tip.
0: Oh, my god okay 1965 um that's very interesting
1: that's It's the only movie that talks about fracture <laughs> mechanics I,
0: I was just gonna say that i know of. did you guys have uh, watch parties with those
1: <laughs> it, it's awful i mean you should watch it once it's awful
0: <laughs> i mean this poster looks amazing i'm gonna say like i'm pretty excited about this Right. (laughs) I do like the tagline, thank God, it's only a motion picture. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Crack in the world. This is good stuff. Mm. Okay. That's that's beautiful. I mean, that's more sound science than was in, you know, Twister, probably.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, like everybody that had great breakthrough ideas, Griffith was ignored. For a Obviously. while, <laughs> Yep.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh Really, until the fifties. I mean, people kind of knew about this idea, but it didn't. It didn't make its way into engineering until the nineteen fifties. That's crazy. Yeah, and it made its way into engineering again, because uh, the again, wartime, the U.S. Navy Research Labs (NRL). And they had this gentleman named George Rankin Irwin, G.R. Irwin. Yeah, that sounds That right. was working at, at NRL. And he looked at the idea and said, well, it's not really accepted because of a couple ideas. One is there's this crazy high orders of magnitude of stress uh, for materials that are proposed here. And there's no inelastic deformation accounted for in the model. Okay. We know that most, I mean, glass is kind of an edge case. Yeah. Uh, but we know that, you know, you think about a piece of steel, if you've got a crack in it and you start stressing it, mm-hmm. it doesn't just it's... not do anything, not do anything, then go blammo. Right. It, it bends some first.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: And last week we learned that that's called... <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, which part oh dude it's finals week i don't know
1: <laughs> inelastic deformation <laughs> oh man, it's,
0: see that was one of those things that was it, too easy and i knew there was going to be a weird word for it
1: well and plastic
0: you, yeah you scared me
1: <laughs> yeah so
0: <laughs>
1: in the the Irwin modification there's this plastic zone out at the tip of the crack okay so strain is partitioned or stress, or However you want to consider, energy is partitioned (laughs) into two things in the Erwin model. You've got the elastic strain energy, which is just elastic deformation of material. And a crack, if you think about it, a crack releases elastic strain energy. All right. Okay. And then there's the dissipated energy. The stuff that doesn't go into stretching or cracking the material, Mm -hmm. which is the energy that goes into the plastic deformation and the energy that goes to surface energy.
0: Ooh, okay.
1: So you think about it, if you're cracking a material, you are increasing that material surface energy because you're exposing more surface area.
0: Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. Of course. Oh, interesting. How did he do all these experiments without lasers or high... uh... (laughs) I guess they probably had pretty good videos of stuff back then, though.
1: In the 50s? It had all been film at high speed. So probably not great.
0: better than, you know, nothing.
1: (laughs) But Hmm. you can do all these cool tricks, which we did some of in grad school, where you take a transparent material like glass or... uh, a plastic, and you cross polars.
0: Okay. Yeah. Oh. And you yeah, can yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. see yeah, these can. interference fringes that are representative of the stress of the material at that point.
0: hmm The little rainbows that you get, the little arc-looking yeah. rainbows at the tips of the plexiglass cracks.
1: Exactly.
0: Oh man, that's just something I've noticed for fun. Who thought about turning that into an actual assignment?
1: <laughs> yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. This is, there's all kinds of neat ways you can figure things like this out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You can get into the details, which I don't really want to, (laughs) on this episode of plain strain and plain stress.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: Basically, is your material really thin or really thick? Okay. Because that changes how that plastic zone looks.
0: Right. Three-dimensionally, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. We generally, for the earth, can just talk about plane stress. Because if you consider the fault to be your fracture, which it is, mm-hmm. or your crack.
0: And the whole crust then, to be your...
1: Yeah, it's a pretty thick plate.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So we just talk about plane stress. Yeah. Now, if you're talking about a little piece of metal that you're drilling bolt holes in and bolting onto your water tower to fix it you might have to think more about plane strain. Okay. But we're geologists, we can ignore it.
0: Amen. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Um So, you can you can start playing all kinds of games then with I've got hey, the, the wording and I never understood why they picked this is a penny-shaped crack. <laughs>
0: A penny shaped crack, like a penny nail or an actual penny?
1: Like an actual penny. Okay. So imagine you've got a block of rock sitting on the table in front of you. Let's say it's a cubic foot. And in the center 0.3 meters on a side Mm -hmm. for the rest of you. Okay. (laughs) All right. So in the very center of that, there is a void. The shape of a penny. Okay. It's as if you had cast that piece of rock with a penny in it and then teleported the penny
0: out. Okay. That
1: is your defect. That is your penny-shaped crack.
0: Oh, all right.
1: And we can calculate all kinds of things around this idealized circular disk-like crack. Hmm. And we, we do. So there's all kinds of different cracks that we can do this for. So there's the infinite plate, uniform axial stress, the penny-shaped crack in an infinite domain, the finite plane, uniform uniaxial stress, the edge crack in a plate under uniaxial stress, and on and on and on and on. All these different types of cracks that there are analytical solutions for.
0: (laughs) I was trying to think, like, why would you even do a penny-shaped crack? But I guess that would be like something blowing a hole in something. So now that makes sense to me.
1: That's a fault. A fault is a penny-shaped crack. Okay. Hmm. Because you think about it, you've got this big plate, and then the fault fails. It doesn't come all the way to the surface, generally. Mm-hmm. Those surface expressions are not actually the fault most of the time. Right. And it doesn't go all the way down to the core and out the other side. Mm-hmm. It doesn't laterally extend all the way around the world, and it doesn't have infinite thickness. It's a penny-shaped crack in the scheme of the world.
0: Wow. Yeah, I never would have said that hmm i'm looking at some diagrams now and that makes more sense
1: yeah so we talk about faults as penny-shaped cracks
0: penny-shaped cracks all right you weirdos
1: (laughs) right (laughs) and it's helpful that we can solve that penny-shaped crack with analytical equations
0: yes Mm -hmm. exactly okay that's very hmm, it's very interesting does, I mean, it also does it hold for you know bullet holes too, though. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so that would a bullet hole in something like uh, an old car would be a plain strain problem. Yeah, it sure would. Yeah.
0: All right, never mind. Not on my not on my fracture toughness game, obviously.
1: <laughs> well, then you start talking about like a well bore going through rock, and that uh-huh. becomes interesting. Okay. Because if it's a well bore going through. I don't know, 500 meters, a kilometer of sandstone, it's a much different story than a well bore going through a foot-thick layer of shale.
0: Yes. Yes, it is. Hmm.
1: There you start getting into more plain strain work.
0: I guess my drilling, my coring machine creates penny-shaped cracks, too. Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) All right, so another thing that we can start talking about, then, is the stress intensity factor.
0: All right.
1: Uh, which is abbreviated K, like everything else in mechanics.
0: Oh, uh, what?
1: Yep. What? It could be stiffness. It could be. Yeah. Oh, my no. God. Isn't call this it K.
0: Spring constant K, too?
1: Well, that's little k. This is capital no, K. Oh, this
0: is big K. Sorry. Right. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Ha.
1: All right. So. We can use a stress intensity factor. It's a, it's a dimensionless quantity uh, that varies with the load that we're applying and the geometry of the crack. So we can say the stress intensity factor for a penny-shaped crack is thus and so, and plug it into the equation. Okay. The stress intensity factor for a hole through a thin plate is something else.
0: Okay, that makes sense.
1: All right. So, this stress intensity factor, then, uh, is somewhat empirical, like a lot of these engineering things, <laughs> <laughs> and it also depends on the mode of the crack.
0: I mean, that makes sense, too, because of all the things we just talked about.
1: So, let's imagine the same crack, but that has three modes that it can be loaded in. Okay. All right, so if you take your hands, you press them together palm to palm and hold them out in front of you, Mm -hmm. and you start separating them at your wrist while holding your fingertips together, Mm -hmm. that's mode one. So there's something pulling the material apart perpendicular to the long axis of the crack. Okay. Okay, mode two is what you do when your hands are cold and you're rubbing them back and forth. (laughs) So mode two is you push your right hand away from you and pull your left hand towards you. That's a mode two or an in-plane shear All mode. right. Then you can do the evil villain, which is where you take your right wrist and move it down, your left wrist and move it up, kind of like you're rubbing your hands together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is out-of-plane shear, and okay. that's mode three.
0: I prefer evil villain, cold hands, and... (laughs) Evil villain, cold
1: hands, and...
0: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know what that... Mode one would be. I have to think of something. Super glued
1: my hands together.
0: Ooh, there we go.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So for these different modes and these different types of cracks, we have these expressions that we can solve to give us an idea of when a crack will become critical and just fail.
0: All right makes sense
1: yeah now where this matters why this matters is we don't want to build things (laughs) like planes or like rock in the earth Mm -hmm. inside on places that you're going to have very easy critical crack ruptures
0: I mean, we don't want to, but we do. But anyway.
1: Right. So you want something that's more like a steel to build your car out of. Because when you get in a fender bender, it bends. It doesn't just break apart. Right. And if you do get a tear in your steel bumper, if you've got an old car that still has a steel bumper, if you get a tear in that, it's probably not going anywhere. Because that steel has a very high fracture toughness. So, steels, you're looking at something like 100 MPA root meters. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, A glass, you're looking at something like 1 MPA root meter. (laughs) Uh,
0: I was just looking up aerogel, too.
1: (laughs) Oh, what what is it?
0: 0.0008 megapascal per root meter. That's that's down there. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. It's the lowest one on that. So
1: what's interesting, though, is if you make a plot of log strength on X and log fracture toughness on Y. Okay. So let's follow a vertical line up that plot at a strength of, let's say, 1,000 MPa. Mm hmm Glass and steel both lie on that vertical.
0: Ah, yeah.
1: They have the same strength. They have very different fracture toughnesses. That's why your glass bumper
0: would shatter. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Mm. Interesting.
1: So that's the story really in a nutshell of fracture toughness. It's history um, and sort of the brief overview of the modes of cracks and how they relate to stress intensity, which relates to fracture toughness.
0: I think there's a lot to talk about in the um the actual empirical devices used for measuring this too.
1: Yes. Probably talking <laughs> experimental is a whole nother <laughs> ball game. Because in preparing for this show I was thinking, how can we do like laser cut fractures and acrylic plates mm-hmm. that you can load in the lab? Mm-hmm. and shows students what stress concentration at crack tips looks like.
0: Right. Right.
1: Because, yeah. I, I mean, I remember when I took fracture mechanics at OU, we had to do, okay, there's a fault that failed. It's a stick-slip fault. Calculate the Coulomb stresses around the ends of the crack tip, uh, the tips of the crack. Mm-hmm. So then we would see, like, oh, well, it's going to load these faults more, and it's going to take strain off or stress off these other faults. And, uh it was neat to do it and look at it in a pretty graph on the computer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's cooler to watch it
0: <laughs> uh. actually
1: happen in a material.
0: Well, it helps make that leap between those two things, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I I am a very I see. I guess the word would be kinesthetic learner.
0: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I you that. can
1: tell me about it. I can see the graph on the computer. I can probably understand it from the graph, but I internalize it if I can put my hands on it.
0: So interesting. I made my students take that quiz at the beginning of the year, and I scored very close to kinesthetic learner, and I never would have thought that I was that. So that was very interesting to me.
1: That doesn't surprise me.
0: Hmm, that's even more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how the things you tell yourself get ingrained when maybe it's not even true, because I'm always like, nope, I don't don't like graphs. I just want to look at the words. That's it, just the words. I don't need to do anything, but read the book on it, and then I'll be fine. But yeah, I took, like, two or three different learning tests, because the first one I was like, that's weird. And they both, they'd come out, like, 50% like kinesthetic learner. So, yeah.
1: I mean, when you... Like, let's say you're talking about orienting a core, PMAG wise.
0: Oh yeah, I get my pencils Can't. out and I reenact it with pencils. So yeah.
1: <laughs> yep, that's kinesthetic. Of <laughs> because that's what I do too. <laughs>
0: it's the only way.
1: <laughs> the The number of times that I have even like 3D printed something, just, <laughs> just so I can hold it. And manipulate it in space and understand it.
0: Oh, man. Oh, that's so great. Um, I don't think my colleague Heather listens to this podcast, but if she does, I'm sorry. I absolutely took the 3D printed seismic line out of your mailbox and looked at it today. <laughs> <laughs> For that same thing when I was like, oh, this is 3D printed seismic. How cool is this? <laughs> right. So, yeah. All right. Maybe it shouldn't be surprising.
1: But no, but I I've, I was wondering like how can we build a little a little machine where you can load up some some penny shaped cracks in acrylic
0: mm-hmm.
1: and put them in mode one, mode two, and mode three. Stress.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever you have that's putting them in there, it's gotta have little hands drawn on it.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and that's to say super glue, evil, and very cold. <laughs>
1: I like the evil hands that's my favorite
0: yeah that's a that's a really good one too when I was trying to guess what the third one was that's exactly what I was doing so I'm I'm glad about that but I will say that talking about learning styles definitely plays into this week's fun paper because these graphs are yeah
1: (laughs) I'm very curious to what you have to say so that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper Friday (laughs) yay
0: so I came across this, the citizen science version of this article. And I don't remember if I heard it on the radio or what. But so then I pulled the paper and I was like, "Ah, oh, we can do this. And then when I started reading the paper, I thought, no, I absolutely only want to talk to you about the figures. <laughs> but.
1: In what way?
0: Uh, Well, we'll get there. Um, All right. <laughs> so in my... I need to know the stats on this, John. My fun paper picking for dogs has to be very high. This is... It is. Ancestry-inclusive dog genomics challenges popular breed stereotypes by Moral et al.
1: (laughs) There's a lot of et al's and there's not enough punctuation in that title because I had to read it three times before I got the correct cadence.
0: Yes, correct. (laughs) So essentially... Do dog breeds tell you, like, is a pit bull always a mean dog? And I fall into that category of thinking, yes, a pit bull is always a mean dog. Please do not flood me with mail. The data disprove my stereotype, okay? I understand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the deal is is exactly that. Um, what was really cool about this, and this is they took all of this data from this thing called Darwin's Ark. And so I got on and loaded my dog into <laughs> Darwin's Ark. Cause this is so cool. It's this database of like thousands and th- tens of thousands of dogs. Um, and they give you all these questionnaires about, you know, what is your dog? What are their characteristics? All these different answers. Um, or all these different quizzes about specific things, like, are they social? Uh, Do they bark or howl a lot? What do they do with toys? Do they not like toys? And so you answer all these questions about that, um, and then people can get this database and do all these tests. And I thought that was super cool. And so a lot of very interesting things came out of this most recent study using the Darwin's Ark database.
1: Let me tell you, Darwin's Ark is the appropriate name for my dogs.
0: <laughs> oh, I figured that they fell into the Mendel's Mutt's cohort.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I thought this was really neat. Um, so, yeah, you human sociability, arousal level, which means, you know, do they bark a lot? Toy-directed motor patterns, bitability. Didn't know what that word meant. <laughs> And, and so, <laughs> neither
1: of our dogs are very biddable.
0: <laughs> See, and mine is much is pretty biddable. So do they follow directions? Are they easily trainable or are they very independent? Agnostic Threshold, which I wouldn't have I wouldn't have guessed in a million years what this meant. <laughs> Basically, if you try to like steal a dog's food or if you scare it, does it bark at you or is it or is it like scared and or does it not care at all? Right. Um Dog sociability: Does it like other dogs? Environmental engagement: Does it play a lot, or does it just lay there? And proximity seeking: Does it need to cuddle, or is it a little snobby cat? Right. <laughs> so I answered all these dog questions about my dog, but I thought it was interesting. Um, but also in this paper, so this is um, this is in science. It's like a one-page abstract. So before we even talk about the the paper. I really just want to talk about the aesthetic of this paper, because I have written down here, Ask Lehman what abstract type he likes best. <laughs> because we talk about this all the time. Um, you know, there are abstracts that are bullets. There are abstracts in, is it JAMA or Bama, BMJ? Right. That has, like, you know, a little prompt, and you write one sentence about introduction, conclusion. And then there's just pictorial. But this is, like, a one-pager abstract that is both pictorial and... Very wordy.
1: Well, so when I first got the paper, I was like, oh, it's just one page. And then I saw the next yeah. <laughs> page had the same title and author list at the top. Uh-huh. I thought, Is something wrong with the PDF? It took me a while to figure out that that, that whole first page was the abstract.
0: Yes. Because once you start reading, it also still has an abstract. Like, it's, yeah, it was very confusing, too. I also thought that the PDF was messed up. I'm like, it's got a one-pager. Like, this 16-page article has a one-pager, too. I guess that's the press release version of it.
1: And here's my, my thought on the figures. <laughs> if anybody that wrote this is listening, I'm sorry. They're beautiful. They are gorgeous figures that I can tell somebody spent days on each one probably. And they are so information-dense, they are useless.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely got lost. I'm going to say I got lost in the figures and the words. Um, yeah,
1: there's... the writing was vague.
0: Yeah. and It's not just because, you know, we're not genomics people. Like, I read a lot of stuff in Cell. Um <laughs> But yeah, uh, the one-pager was needed for sure. And the figures are interesting. It is so many different ways to display data are shown in this this article, right? Right. And I think that, that made it interesting to me. But just like you said, trying to figure out what they were saying was kind of difficult.
1: Well, and like figure... It doesn't even have a number. The figure in the abstract.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Why are there pictures of dogs pointing to certain data points?
0: <laughs> because that's all people care about. <laughs> I,
1: I get that That's that data point is that dog. Is there something special about it? Is it an outlier? So I is think, it the mean?
0: I think they did that because... So the deal is dog breeds are very young. Like, we... Domesticated wolves, like ten thousand years ago or something, but dog breeds, which I didn't know how young they were, are basically Victorian.
1: That's a geologist answer, wasn't it? Two. <laughs> <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> okay, that's true. <laughs> but still.
0: But still. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's within
1: a factor of ten. It's fine.
0: Exactly. <laughs> but what did come out of it is that basically dog breeds are just for different looks, that the actual actions, all those things that I listed before are, some of them are nearly independent of breed. And so I think that's why they put the pictures, because it said that basically breeds generally look different, but the different looks have very little to do with their behaviors.
1: Interesting. So, I don't know. I, I would have cut a lot out of this figure.
0: You would have cut um, all these cute dogs? Look at Caboose's face. He has glasses on. How dare you?
1: <laughs> well, and like in A, where it says bitability, there's a beautiful silhouette of a dog with a bone balanced on its nose.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I
1: understand that we're trying to make the data beautiful, that we're trying to make something like an infographic.
0: Mm-hmm
1: it needed a page of text to support it.
0: Yeah. I kind of wanted a little more, I know this is an article in science, but I don't know. I think it could have been broken down a little better. I also felt like the paper just ended. I didn't feel like there was a really good conclusion on the paper. There was on the abstract page, the one page. Yeah. The
1: abstract had a much better conclusion.
0: Yeah. I feel like there wasn't even really a conclusion. And I was like, Oh, did I, I'm in the bibliography already. Like, (laughs) Mm mm-hmm. So, it was interesting.
1: Well, and then, you know, like uh, the next figure in the paper, figure one. Uh, At the top, we say 20,000 years ago, extinct ancestral wolves. Today, approximately one billion dogs.
0: Yeah, that part was really weird.
1: And then in the middle, unusual behaviors appear, question mark. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Example, I saw a What does that mean? Pattern. Yeah, uh-huh. And, and why not, is that
1: dog chasing that lamb?
0: <laughs> that's the useful behavior. It's not talked about at all. Uh-huh. It's, it's like selection on behavior in dogs predates modern breeds. Okay. But, yeah, it's very, mm-hmm. Like the wolf now, has nothing to do with anything on here.
1: You're right. Then there's, <laughs> this one also really confused me. It's to make the layout work, but... So under figure E and F, there's a table, sort of. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I finally determined that it is part of figure F that just runs over under figure E. Mm -hmm. And it is called an upset plot. Yeah. I had to look these up. Okay. Have you ever seen them?
0: No. How did you figure out that's what it was called?
1: It's in that half-page-long figure caption.
0: Ah, okay. All right, gotcha. All right, Um, Mm
1: quarter-page-long. It is a matrix representation of a Venn diagram. Okay. So, where there's the dark circles with the lines connecting them, Mm -hmm. those are overlapping circles in the Venn diagram.
0: Mm Okay. Okay.
1: What does that tell me? I have no idea.
0: What about when they span over an open circle? <laughs>
1: is that one's not in the Venn diagram.
0: Okay. See, but so, it makes it look included. That's a okay.
1: Like surveyed and mut in the mm-hmm. fourth column. Yeah. Overlap, but right. sex, age, and size info is not included. I I didn't understand what this one was trying to tell me Mm -hmm. at all until (laughs) I looked at figure F above it, or well, the top part of figure F. (laughs) Yes. So here's my interpretation of it. I don't know if it's right. If you look at the leftmost bar in figure F that says 6,110,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think this means that 6,110 responses, all responses were surveyed, so that whole top row is filled in, had age, sex, and size info, and were mutts. Yes. Then 3,997, the second bar, were surveyed, had age, sex, and size info, and were a candidate breed. Yeah. So this is a way to break down how many responses had different characteristics. But boy, mm-hmm. it took a long time to decode.
0: Yeah, that's right. Because I, it was about 1800 that they asked for genetic data. Because when I signed Hank up for the ARC, it said, we, as, as, different, um, as different research projects get funded, we'll pay for your dog to get genetic data. And it was 1700 for this one. So that makes sense. With that, but I don't know what the 2100 number is to the, the sideways histogram.
1: <laughs> uh, so that's how many were, so like under age, sex, and size info, there were 14,327 responses that had it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And then if you want to see, like uh, you want to see, well, how many responses had that As well as 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 MUT and genetic data, then you read that vertical and see it's 1,037.
0: Oh, okay.
1: It's a very weird cross table.
0: This is very weird. You were correct.
1: I think once you get the hang of it, it's probably pretty useful. But the fact that 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 table is part of figure F, but went under figure E, made it really confusing.
0: I feel like E doesn't even need to be there.
1: No, like, who cares about how much? How many of the surveys were completed?
0: Yeah, they said that in there. Mm -hmm. I had a problem upon first glance with G as well, of the like candidate and confirmed. I guess I didn't. I didn't understand what that meant (laughs) when I look at this because it's got breeds reported in purebred dogs, and then like the breeds are on the y-axis. And it says like candidate and confirmed. And I just, I didn't understand why there would be more confirmed than candidate. Like, what was that right. based on? Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And okay, so let's see. Uh, figure two, there's a lot of really cute clip art so of dogs. So cute. <laughs> and then these dots that show Ugh. the normalized score, and these,
0: mm-hmm. I mean, Mm
1: -hmm. a a table would be so much easier to read
0: it would and this is where i'm like this is an interesting way to do this and i spent a lot of time with this one because this is the one that's like to me this is the interesting thing that says that behavioral traits don't align with breeds which is what yeah a lot of what came out of this too but aesthetic traits do pyrenees are big Yes, they're generally independent, sort of, but actually it's not, it's not a real high thing, even though that's what I always think of, so. Right. Yeah, but I agree. This was, it took a lot of deciphering, which kind of is the opposite of what you want in a table, right? Like, I had to read the text very in depth to figure out what they were.
1: Well, a lot of these figures, like you go down to figure six, there's a lot of very clearly Edward Tufty-esque influence here. <laughs> like, there are no spines on the chart side. So, you know, removing chart junk. Okay, fine. But one, it's inconsistent, whether yeah. it's done or not throughout the paper. And two, some of them are just impossible to read because they've left so much detail off.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but the one that really killed me other than, okay, so mostly I could eventually decode. Somebody wanted to spend a lot of time and make something look beautiful for their science paper. Okay. Figure 3H.
0: should see these figures is like an entire page. so. Yeah, <laughs> it takes, it takes yeah. all of them have some, like A some through some something. Scrolling. Well, that's just the thing that you get when you do your doggy's DNA.
1: <laughs> yeah, but pie charts, for reasons we've talked about before, are awful (laughs) your eye does terrible with angular areas like that
0: Uh, but i don't think that's the point of this i think this is what makes it a little uh, ironically this is what would make it a little more like citizen science acceptable because this is how you get their little dna things back when you pay for dna and so i see why they did that but yes you're correct
1: Yeah, but don't take a pie chart and throw the dog's picture in the middle of it and put it in a science paper.
0: Yeah, and the point of it is, like, they have these different, like, you know, you have some that are purebreds, right? And some that are, it's very rare that, it said, this was interesting, it said it was very rare that dogs have less than five breeds um, associated with them. So, within their stats, they have these, like, purebred, hybrid, admixed, or highly admixed, and it's like that... That didn't need to be in a chart, but it is an no. excuse to put puppies in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and except, mm-hmm. while all the cute dog pictures are great, yeah, it doesn't really help me answer the question.
0: Correct. You have to give them that... I mean, you know, we're not here to break this apart.
1: No. Like, tear no. it
0: down. It's not like we're gods at this. But the point is, you know, figures are important, right? And this paper... I, I thought the conclusion was really cool but I also thought the paper had an interesting use of figures. And what they did do excellently is there are no terrible color variations in here.
1: Uh, I think it's tried to do a lot of the Edward Tufty ideas, tried to do the infographic idea,
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: which is great but this is science. The raw data are complex.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And in trying to make that complex raw data into more of an infographic format made it really hard for me to follow
0: i will say that i liked not how it's set up but kind of d and e in figure four i thought okay that was actually really good
1: i'm scrolling
0: yeah <laughs> It's on page seven. It is page seven. (laughs) I thought this one was really good because this is a lot of complex data. Right. And there are a lot of things they're trying to point out. And I actually like their little permutation Z score, which I had to go back to the front and read about a little bit. So I still had to do a lot of reading to understand what it was saying, but I quite liked this graphic.
1: Right. Well, and... I'm not going to say that I know how to plot this many variables any better.
0: Right, exactly. Like Specifically for this d and I think it's really cool. I think this one's like, really neat.
1: There are neat. so many variables plotted against so many other things. It's going to be a complex plot no matter what. So God bless them for trying to make it yeah. pretty.
0: And I thought it was cool because they did it. At, and This is what I wanted to talk about in here. I feel like they tried to show the data. If you didn't get it, it's shown in, like, 10 different ways. Yeah. So this, this plot uses color gradients. It uses size of their little circle points to denote, um, you know, the permutations. So a bigger one is a bigger circle. And I thought that was really cool. And then shape, too.
1: Right. So you can print it in black and white or be colorblind and uh-huh. still and understand. you
0: can totally get all of it so I thought this one was actually very I don't know if it's ingenious I don't know if this is something that gets used a lot I thought this was really cool and it shows that like you can physical traits are very heritable so if we get back to the whole point of the, t- the paper if I want a big dog that's great I'm gonna do Pyrenees or something big and that happens if I want short fur or long fur that's all heritable but all this stuff, like sociability, bidability, proximity seeking, there's just not a ton. Now, there are some that go along. Like, a basset hound is very... doesn't care about stuff. <laughs> like, okay. that's it's very awesome.
1: independent. Yeah, that's
0: pretty clear. <laughs> but, but, yeah, overall, it doesn't matter what you have. I thought that was really cool. So.
1: Yeah. So yeah. you know, I think it's kinda of like people too, like Exactly. If your parents are tall, you might be tall. You could be nice or you could be a jerk. Yeah. It doesn't matter exactly. what your parents are like.
0: That's exactly right. And it's really important because there's all kinds of to get to my bleeding heart animal lover side, there's all these studies about how like black dogs and black cats, because they're they're like associated with witchcraft and stuff, don't get you know, it's like everyone thinks, and this happened with us. We had a black dog and, a, and like, a spotted dog. And so, like, the dog that wasn't all black but had a little bit of other colors in her, people didn't, they reacted differently. Right. So it's very interesting. It's like it has nothing to do with that. And just, like, here, especially with the pit bulls, because I'm like, those are mean dogs. They were they were bred to fight and all this stuff. And it's like theirs is very clear, but No. They're jerk pit bulls, and they're super nice pit bulls. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. So overall, this was very interesting, and it was a very interesting use of graphics. Whether you thought it was good or not, I think it's worth looking at.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There are certainly things to be picked up from it because, like I said, somebody put a ton of work into these.
0: Oh, my gosh. I mean, this is probably... It's probably, like, two main scientists, and the rest of these names are just undergrads making these graphs.
1: <laughs> right. So, I'm not kidding.
0: This is, like, a NASA paper amount of authors.
1: Yeah. So there's a ton of work that went into it. Individually, all of these elegraph elements are really pretty nice.
0: Yeah. It's just a lot in this paper.
1: <laughs> exactly. So... Uh-huh. A-plus for trying to make something that's a large complex data set understandable. Yes. A little less than that on not absolutely overloading my senses.
0: <laughs> yes, that is very true. But also, I'm pro the cute doggy pictures, so that's fine.
1: <laughs> well, in part, of it's me being a crumpy, crumpy old man saying...
0: That's for sure.
1: That... <laughs> This is a paper in science.
0: It shouldn't have cute dog pictures in it. Right. Uh, One of the questions... They're
1: irrelevant to the conclusions.
0: That's not true. They're exactly relevant. Um, Because when you look at those pictures, you know that one of these questions on here, which has its own graphic, was get stuck behind objects. (laughs) You can look at these dogs and you know which one of these dummies got stuck behind objects. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. oh yeah so it's a very interesting paper i highly recommend looking at it because it's just an interesting assault on your senses
1: (laughs) great well if you have doggy dna data or pictures of your dog that you would like us to look at i would be happy to see those in my email <laughs> Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us?
0: Um, if you do this, I'm sending you back pictures. My dog, show at don't com. Oh man, let's get this started in the Slack channel. I'm going to be on the Slack channel a lot more now. So, um, all the doggy pictures, bring them on. We're on the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. We're on Twitter, at Don't Panic Geo, at Shannon Doolin, and at Geo underscore Lehman. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Geo.
1: And until next week, remember, don't panic.
0: It's definitely not an exact science.